morning, Grace Point. It's great to see you. Good morning, all of you joining us online. Glad you're joining us uh, that way this morning. How many of you have ever been to the Continental Divide in Colorado? Anybody cross that ever? Loveland Pass? Yeah, and we got some pictures of it behind me going on as I, as I speak. Uh, I wouldn't have known that we were crossing the Continental Divide, except there was this huge monument saying, you are now at the Continental Divide. You're at an elevation of 11,990 feet, right? And so I knew, oh, we're at the Continental Divide. Interesting thing about the Continental Divide, it's said that if a drop of water falls on one side or the other side, of the uh, continental divide, it'll end up, you know, across the whole continent in a different ocean, either the Atlantic or the Pacific, right? Of course, that assumes it doesn't evaporate. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? So you understand that. Uh, but if it didn't evaporate, it would end up in a different ocean, depending on which side of the continental divide it, it landed on. Um, we're going to talk about a different kind of continental divide this morning. There's a spiritual continental divide that's a very, uh, very much a reality. It depends on what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say there's two people that are growing up in a very similar situations, very similar households, and they're both good students, and they're both good, you know, contributors to the community. But when it comes to Lord Jesus Christ, one receives Christ, one rejects Christ. This one has their sins forgiven. This one is still lost in their sins. This one is in a loving relationship with God the Father, beginning to understand life from a whole different perspective. This one is living for, her, for worldly means and thinking that they can find fulfillment in worldly endeavors. This one is heaven-bound, right? This one is where? Hell-bound. That's a continent apart. It's a drastic difference. Here's our introductory thought today. Jesus Christ is a spiritual continental divide. Depending on what you do with him, you end up way apart in different destinations. Listen to John 3.36, not John 3.16. Okay, listen to John 3.36. It says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So there's this full-blown contrast here articulated in John 3.36, depending on what you do with Jesus. If you receive Jesus, friends, it's life. If you reject Jesus, it's what? It's death. They're a spiritual continent apart. The Old Testament leader Moses, he's one of my favorite characters of the Old Testament, after leading the Israelites to the promised land, has this moment of reflection and challenge to the nation of Israel. You've got to remember now, Moses was 80 years old when he began his leadership for this nation of Israel. He's led them now for 40 years, led them through all kinds of, of intervention with God, seeing the Red Sea part, seeing all the miracles of deliverance from Egypt, then seeing all the miraculous supply that God provided for them. You know, and he gets to the end of his ministry, and, and we're to the end of Deuteronomy, and he's kind of reflecting, and he lays out a challenge to the people of Israel that's still, I think, a valid challenge to you and I today. It's found in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. Listen to what he says. He says this. Now, this is a man of great wisdom, experienced God like crazy, seeing God face to face. Here's the words he shares as he knows that his death is imminent. He says this. See, I, I said before you today, life and prosperity, death and destruction. You see the contrast? I lay before you today, life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God 
to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing, the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a powerful contrast here laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It, following God um, and, and not following God lead to very different destinations. And if you read the Old Testament in light of this challenge by Moses, it, it looks different. You begin to understand it in a different way. There's this constant tension between rejection of God and receiving of God. I mean, if you look at Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the major prophets, the minor prophets, if you begin to look at them through this filter, do you receive God or do you reject God, the Bible begins to kind of come alive in, in a different way. I mean, just think about this. Even the book of Judges, you have the people receiving God, following God hard, and then they'd be praising God, they'd be rejoicing God. Then they would forget God, and they would reject God, and then they'd find themselves over here with consequences like crazy and under the, uh, you know, under the, the, the thumb of enemies, and, and things were going bad. Then they would repent, and they would remember God, and then they're over here. They're receiving the blessings of God, and they're rejoicing, and life is good, and it go on for like 40 years, and then they would forget God, and they reject God, and then they end up over here. And you know, I read the Bible in big chunks anymore. And I read this through Judges. I go, no! Why do you forget so easily? And if you read it in big chunks, you begin to see this. See, back and forth and back and forth. It's, it's Disney. It, it makes you just like, you get tired. What's going on here, God? And I find myself praying, God, let me never forget. Let me never forget your goodness and who you are. Then I begin to pray for my children. God, help them never forget your goodness. Then I find myself praying for you all. Help Grace Point people never forget who God is and never have to get over here where they're broken and destroyed because they've rejected and forgotten you, God. Help us to be people who cling tightly to you. Now, this whole thing that I'm sharing with you maybe seems simple and evident, but evidently, friends, it's a huge challenge. Because we have several thousand years of history saying that people tend to forget God. Amen? We do. It's called the Old Testament. And all throughout the Old Testament, it's a sad story of people forgetting who God is and coming over here and experiencing destruction. There's just a propensity in us. There's this tendency to just forget our God. And then we come under the destruction of the culture that we find ourselves in. The Bible is just full of this contrast over and over again. It's like God's making a point. It's like the Old Testament's a primer to help us understand what it means to follow God and what it means not to follow God. What decisions do and what, where they lead us to. And I have to believe that God very much on purpose painted this picture so you and I would get it. 
so that we'd understand this, so that we would learn vicariously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 6, we're told that these kinds of examples were given in the Old Testament so that we would not set our hearts on evil, that we would not think that we're the exception to the rule, so we'd be well educa- educated in this differentiation between following after God and rejecting God. Um, and what I'm sharing with you, if you've been around the things of Christ for a while, nothing I've shared with you thus far is earth-shaking, is it? I think you probably know some of this, but here's the deal. I want you to hear me now for just a moment. Here's the deal. I think that more than we admit, we have the propensity to do this. And I think that more than we admit, we have this kind of thought process going on in our minds frequently. I am the exception to the rule. God won't do this. This won't happen to me. And I think we have an awful lot of, uh, of tendency to think, I can get away with doing some things that I ought not to do. I know better to do because I think God will just forgive me. And I, I just, you know, we have this propensity to think that somehow these things don't apply to us, that the word, the exception to the rule. It's got to be part of the case because otherwise, why would the Bible be full of this and this, right? And this over and over and over again. See, we got to understand the outcomes. You get to a very different outcome in your life depending on whether you choose Jesus or reject Jesus. Now, when I say choose Jesus, choose life, and I'm going to say that frequently during this message, I'm not merely meaning choose him to be your savior. Although if you do not know Jesus Christ and you're sitting here today, I can't encourage you enough to receive him as your savior and your Lord. Your life will never be the same once you do that. But when I say choose life, choose Jesus, which I'm going to say throughout this message, here's what I mean. Choose his lifestyle. Choose to have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. Choose to model everything you do in your life after Christ. Choose to live in the way. In the, old te- in, in, in the olden days when, when Christianity was first being birthed, they called the people who followed Jesus the people of the way. They lived the way according to Christ. When I say choose life, choose Christ, I'm saying choose his ways. Amen? Choose to follow him daily, hourly. Choose to follow him in your families and in your workplaces. Anyway, you can fill it in the blank there. So uh, the reason I've shared this with you is I want you to have a perspective here of contrasts. That so much of the Bible is presented to us in this contrast form. Rejection and receiving of Christ lead you to very different outcomes because this contrast continues in the triumphal entry, which we're going to look at this morning since it's Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to begin with this big thought, and it'll make sense as the message unfolds uh, this morning. The triumphal entry is a story of contrasts. Contrasted of outcomes that are a continent apart. So when we look at the triumphant entry, which we uh, celebrate on a Palm Sunday like this, um, it's the it's the Sunday before the crucifixion is going to take place, and then the resurrection is going to take place, and it's told in all four gospels. It's one of those unique happenings and events where it shows up in all four gospels. So it's extraordinarily important uh, to the people of Jesus' day, and of course to us as we continue to remember our our Savior and what he's done for us. And I'm going to read the account of, then, the triumphal entry from Luke chapter 19. I'm going to do that very much on purpose because it really emphasizes some of the contrasts that are going on here, some of those, those two kind of different things that are happening in the story. And so I'm going to read that because it lends itself well to the message theme today and that we're looking at some of the ways that the Bible gives us these contrasts so that we can kind of learn, so we can kind of understand. And so here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 46 says this. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, 
he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread the cloaks on the road and elsewhere in other, other uh, versions of this in the other Gospels, uh, it says they, they put palm branches down also. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known in this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. You have made it into a den of robbers. Well, it's evident here, there's several contrasts revealed to us in this triumphal entry. And basically, Jesus is kind of reiterating what Moses said. Before you today is life or death. Depending on what you choose here will lead to different destinations. And so, so Jesus is a spiritual continental divide. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to look at three ways that there's some contrast in here that are very revealing for us. So I'm going to begin with contrast one because one is the first number. Don't overthink this, all right? There's contrast one, two, and three. There's no real order to this thing. I'm just making a joke, but you understand what I'm saying. So at the triumphal entry, Jesus revealed publicly that he was Messiah, and depending on whether you receive or reject him, the resulting outcomes are going to be extremely different. And no longer does he tell his disciples, shh, shh, don't tell people who I am, like he did in Matthew 12 and Matthew uh, 16. It's time now. Shout my praises. Declare who I am. Let it be known. Let it rip. You know, from that moment on, that was to continue. The people of God were never to hide who Jesus is. They were to shout who he was and, and make him known. And the spreading of cloaks was an act of homage. That was a common symbolic act of receiving a king. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, uh, if you were to read that, it talks about Jehu being anointed as king and being proclaimed as king. And what they did was they put cloaks on the steps. And they said, as he went down the steps, they shouted, the king, the king, Jehu is king, he's king. So in Israel's, Israel, in Israel's history, it was a common practice to, to when you announced the king, to what? put cloaks down in front of them. So when they were putting cloaks down in the road, people who were there were going, the king is coming, the king is coming, and they would get real, real excited. And Jesus is declaring openly now, he's declaring openly now, I'm Messiah. I am the king. 
I am the one you've been waiting for. And Matthew says, you know, according from Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, and a colt on a foal of a donkey. And so Jesus rides into the capital city of Jerusalem on a donkey as a king would come. But he doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the temple. Instead, that's his destination. You know what's that? Why? Because his kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom of God. It's spiritual. And everything that he does, friends, has meaning. It has implication. And so he ascends to his palace, so to speak, the temple. And because he's a spiritual-oriented guy, he kicks out the one selling and says, my house will be called the house of prayer. And we see the zeal of the Lord for the things of the Spirit. And it's a well-known part of this account that there were several crowds that day when he went into Jerusalem. Uh, first of all, there's a crowd of committed disciples. They knew he was Messiah. They knew that he was Savior. Now, do they know the details of what would transpire the next week and how devastating it would be? I don't think so. But they knew this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. But then you had this carried along crowd. They were there kind of for the excitement of the moment. They didn't really know what was going on. They probably had a really wrong impression of who Jesus was and what they wanted him to do. They probably were looking for a delivery from Roman tyranny. It kind of reminds me of the hobo parade we have every fall. Most people who go there go, I don't know why I'm here. I think I should be here. I think I should be excited. I should clap when the bands all go by, which I do every year, you know. I should support this thing. But honestly, most people, when you ask them why you're here, I don't know, something to do, right? Did I hit a nerve there? Because no one's saying much. It's not negative. It's just what it is when you go to those types of things. That's what Jesus was, what what was happening here. I think most of the people are going, "Uh, we really don't know what's going on, but we're excited. Right? Yeah. Hosanna, I think. I think he's going to deliver us. I think. I think he's the son of David. He's our king. He's going to lead us. Yeah, they have all those wrong impressions, right? And then you got this other group. They're more insidious. It's the rejecting, resisting Pharisees. And they're resisting what's going on. And they're saying to Jesus, you know what? Come on. Back off your disciples. And he says that they don't sing to me, my praises, the rocks will, right? So we see here in this first contrast, Jesus is giving us a choice, right? Choose life, choose me, or reject me and choose death. So now we get to contrast number two. The display and delight of the committed disciples was in stark contrast to the resisting reaction of the Pharisees. That's obvious. There's rejoicing, there's a accepting crowd, then there's a resisting, rejecting crowd. They're both there present. And there's this huge, this huge kind of visual moment going on. Um, so I grew up uh, in the 60s. I know that a lot of you don't even know what that means. <laughs> but, um, you know, we just come off the Korean War in the 50s, and then there was a Vietnam War in the 60s. And uh, there, there used to be this make peace, make love, don't make war, right? And if you saw this, you, you knew in my generation, people... Where that was radical then, <laughs> you know, right? Anyway, peace, you'd know what that means, right? You'd see this, you still know what this means, right? When someone does this, peace. Do you know that? Because you're kind of quiet, so I don't know if you know it or not. So in Jesus' day, they didn't say peace this way. Peace for them equaled a donkey, okay? So peace for the people in Jesus' day equaled a donkey. So when Jesus came in on a donkey, It was a visual illustration 
that he was coming to them in peace. It would be like us going, peace, dude, peace. He, if you saw that donkey, you'd go, oh, I know what this means. This king is coming to us in, in peace. And you know what? His disciples became uncorked in a good way. They couldn't hold it back anymore because this is so immersive. Are you getting this? You got this, this visual stuff going on. They're allowed to praise Christ. The donkey's symbolic of peace. People are throwing their cloaks on the ground. Everybody's paying them homage. They think, yes, it's the day. And they are uncorked in the worship of God, uh, of Jesus, and their emotion. They were even emotional. You think it's okay to be emotional? Yeah. They got lost in the emotion. Do you ever get lost in the emotion of Jesus Christ? They, the, the miracles they had seen overwhelmed any reserve that they had. Have you ever experienced that, beloved? Have you ever been just so caught up in who Jesus was? So He's so mighty. He's so real. He's so overwhelming. He's so great. He's so exceedingly glorious that you just begin to lose yourself in him and you don't even notice who's around you while you're doing it. Because Christ is so great. Anybody been watching girls basketball? I know that we lost in the 32. I was disappointed. I quickly uh, turned my allegiance to Iowa. <laughs> and I have reasoning. I lived there for like eight years, okay? And so I've been a Hawkeye fan quietly for a long time. And I knew that they were good. And I follow them a little bit. Now I'm really following them. Well, the other day, when they were getting to the end of the game, <clears throat> Vicky's upstairs. She had some surgery, and so she's kind of kind of asleep. I'm trying to be quiet, and I'm normally not a very demonstrative spectator. I was demonstrative in that game. Caitlin Clark's is shooting free throws at the end. I'm going, hit the free throws. You've done this a thousand times. You can hit those free throws, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm vested in them. I'm relationally invested in them. I know, I know them, you know, and I, I want them to win, right? So I'm going, oh, I can't look. I can't look. You mean good, good, good. You know, I'm going, yeah. I went, yeah, like that. Do you ever do that? <laughs> did it once. I, I'm ashamed to say I did it four times. Because there was four key free throws at the end of that game and they won. And I'm going, yes, yes! The Midwestern teams can still win a game. Yes! It's not just the South. It's not just the East or it's the West. We're in the middle. We did it. Yay! I, I hate to admit it, but I actually was pretty excited. And so today, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I can watch it. But listen, there comes a time in our life, friends, when we're in Jesus Christ, where it needs to uncork. You just need to be overwhelmed with who he is. It needs, something needs to be loosed in you, and you just need to let it go. You just need to let it rip. You need to worship him. When Ben was being excited, I'm going, be excited, brother. Be excited. Because following Jesus is an exciting thing. He's a, he's a savior worth worshiping and worth exalting. I know... I can be grumpy at times. How about all you? Yeah, you can, because I know some of you. <laughs> you can be grumpy. You know what? And, and the, the thing is, I say hi. Oh, okay, they're having a bad day, I think, or they just hate me. I don't know what's going on here. But that, that grumpiness, that, ah, I'm going to say this for myself. I can't speak for you. There are times when God is saying to me to worship him and I'm too grumpy to do it or whatever. You know what that's called? Sin. I'm sinning, man, because I'm not worshiping and exalting my God like he's calling me to do that. And great movements of God always begins with the people of God. 
oftentimes we say, oh, what's wrong with this world? And I'm going, oh, you know, let's not worry about the world right now. Let's worry about the church. Let's be the people that God's called us to be. And oftentimes great movements begin with the people of God become excited about Jesus and repent of what they're doing wrong and they're deciding to choose life and to live a lifestyle that's reflective of Jesus Christ and there's just this uncorking of, uh, of, of reserve. You know, because if you're around the miracle worker, you don't get too reserved anymore. You just start going crazy for who he is. And it starts here with us, friends. If we want a movement of God, it starts here with us. God will take care of the rest. We just have to let it rip here in our midst. So there's one more level of contrast. And I'm going to close up after this. Um, it's really one that has always been puzzling to me when I've read this, and I've read this so many times. So Jesus gets the preposite of, of, of Jerusalem. He gets to the edge of Jerusalem. And what does he do? He looks over the city and he what? Weeps. He weeps in the middle of all this adoration and praise and commotion. He weeps. Don't you think if you were one of the disciples, if you had any kind of relational clue, you'd go, Jesus is crying. Why? But they don't seem to even know it, you know? And so Jesus is, is weeping. And here's contrast number three. On this day of multitudes rejoicing, Jesus regarded the fate of those who reject him, and he wept. And unfortunately, I think this was the status of most of the carried along crowd that day. They just didn't get it. And he knew what was going to happen in a few short days. He knew that they would, the same people that lavished praise on him would soon reject him and shout for him to be crucified um, because they were looking at Christ wrongly. They had a wrong picture of Christ. They had a wrong picture of the mission. They had a wrong picture of their own need. They were just, I think, utterly confused about who he was. They were looking for a deliverer from Roman tyranny and that he came to deliver us from what? The bondage of sin and from the stronghold of the devil. Amen? That's what he came to do, to set us free, free from all that tyranny that's mastered people's lives for so long. He sets us free from that. Uh, I have a picture here that they're going to put up. I call it a kind of a mind-bending picture. And I think you look at this picture, nothing looks right about it, right? You got this big, strong soldier. He's evidently, he's evidently surrendering to a little girl in a cute pink dress. His gun's laying there on the side. And you look at that, what do you think? That doesn't look right, does it? That would never happen in real life. You, you just, it doesn't make sense. This is what happened to the people in Jesus' day who didn't know him and didn't understand his mission. They looked at him and said, you're supposed to deliver us, but you're going to die instead? You're supposed to be, you know, releasing us from our captivity to this Roman tyranny. Instead, you're talking about things uh, of the spiritual world? They, 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 this, was hap- this is what happened to them. They said, it doesn't add up. The pictures doesn't make any sense. And so the majority of the people rejected him and continued to reject him. And Jesus looked at this situation of these people rejecting him on that day of great jubilee and celebration. And he what? He wept over the state of their destiny. He knew that that outcome would lead them to hell. And I broke his heart. And we get a glimpse into this, this heart of Jesus Christ. Um, so he wept over those who didn't recognize him and refused to recognize him. Listen, on this day of Palm Sunday, we have fun. We rejoice and we celebrate Jesus. And we ought to. But we need to celebrate Jesus with the right picture. He's come to save us. He's come to save us from our sins. And he says to you and I today, choose life. And when, he, when, when I say that word, choose life, what I mean is this. Choose to live a lifestyle that's reflective of Lord Jesus Christ. 
Choose to live your life out in a way where you're mimicking him, where you're following hard after him, where day by day you're thinking, how do I bring glory to Jesus in the way I do my life? Choose life. If you don't choose life, like was articulated by Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you reject God and you reject his ways, if you reject to love him and follow after him, you're choosing destruction. You're choosing death. And I think followers of Jesus Christ, part of the a problem that we find out or, or experience in our life is that we, even as followers sometimes, we reject the ways of God and we what? We put ourselves over here where we experience sin, consequences, and some destructive activity. And when we are experiencing that, we have to say, am I choosing life or am I choosing death? And Jesus says, choose life. Not death. That's why the Bible is so full of contrasts. All through. It says, it's, it's, if you choose life, you end up over here. If you choose death, you end up over here. Over and over and over again, the Bible says that because we have a, a propensity to forget that. And to think with the exception to the rule. So I'm going to end with some choices here for you to make. Choose life, choose Jesus. Now you all know what that means, right? When I use that phrase, that means choose his lifestyle. If you fail to choose Jesus, then what are you choosing? Death. So now let's get down into more than nitty-gritty what it means to choose life. Will you be defined by the attributes of Jesus or this world? If you're choosing life, you're saying, I choose to be defined by Christ's criteria, not the world's criteria. So let me give you a couple examples of how that works out. Jesus came as a lowly servant on a donkey, not a prancing steed. Not in royal robes, but on the clothes of, poor, of the poor and the humble. He is not of the kingdoms, his, he, his is not a kingdom of armies and splendor, but of lowliness and servanthood. So when we're saying we're going to choose life, this is what we're choosing. We're choosing to follow Christ and live our lives in this manner. Let's go to another thought here and then we're done. Jesus Christ comes not to conquer by force as earthly kings do, but by love, mercy, and sacrifice. He doesn't conquer nations. That's not what he's about. But instead, he conquers hearts and minds. Amen? If Jesus has made a triumphal entry then into your heart, into your heart, then he should be reigning there in peace and love. And as his followers, when you exhibit these same qualities to the world, they see the true king. When we exhibit, when we exemplify love, mercy, and sacrifice, and we truly do that in the name of Jesus Christ, then somebody around you is seeing what Christ really looks like. Choose life. Choose life. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Lord God, I want to thank you for, um, for the triumphal entry and all of its implications. I want to thank you how the Bible is full of these contrasts and basically comparisons, Lord, from, from Deuteronomy all the way through the whole Bible, Lord. There's just one case after another, after another, after another, after another, showing us the different outcomes when we choose death over choosing life. So today, Lord, I want to first of all pray for anyone here at this service that maybe doesn't know you, Jesus, yet as Savior. It all starts there. I want to pray for such a one today that Holy Spirit, you'd work on their heart and that even in the quietness of this moment of prayer, they would admit, I don't know you, Jesus. I evidently need to know you. And that they would pray, Jesus, come into my heart and would you just be my Savior? I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm lost. And I admit that I've been choosing death, but at this point I choose life. I choose you, Jesus. And I pray some would be born again here. And Holy Spirit, I pray you fill their hearts even now with your, with your presence and your power so that they don't live according to their strength, but they live according to your strength. 
And I pray for all of us, Lord, even for those of us who have walked with you 50, 60 years, today we would choose life, Lord. We admit we have a propensity to forget you and try to do life without you, Lord. And we, pr we pray for your forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that we would continually, day by day, choose life, choose your ways, choose to love you, choose to follow after you, choose to, uh, to, to uh, uh, have you be on the throne of our hearts. So today, Lord, I pray we would just all choose life. We love you so much, Jesus. As we sing this last song, I pray that we would exalt you and kind of drive a stake in the ground this Palm Sunday that you are Savior and Lord and you are our lifestyle. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.